You see a 9-9. Olga Corbett's won a gold medal. There it is. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Hello, I'm Vince Hunt and welcome to our podcast series, Sports in the Cold War. So far, we've looked at more than 20 important themes in Cold War sports history, with plenty more to come. Why not follow the series on Twitter with the hashtag Cold War Sports, or rate and review the shows on iTunes, or drop Laura Deal an email at the Wilson Centre with your thoughts. When we talk about the Cold War, the general assumption is that we're talking about the USA and the USSR on either side of the Iron Curtain. But this overlooks a whole Chinese political and sporting dimension. Here to tell us more about China's very important political and strategic role in the Cold War and China's development as a global sporting contender is Amanda Schumann, an expert on modern Chinese history at the University of Freiburg. Amanda, how significant is China during the Cold War? You know, for a long period of time, Cold War studies in English language literature especially focused primarily on the United States and the Soviet Union with a bit of sort of, um, you know, studies on various European countries. However, especially the last 20 years or so, there's been an increasing emphasis in Cold War studies that also include China in some form or another. And probably, I'd say in the last 10 to 15 years, um, there's been an increasing interest in what you would say is the global Cold War or Third World. So in that way, China has sort of come in through those studies as well. I think that one of the big issues here also is the terminology used. So Cold War itself sort of um, implies that, you know, there isn't fighting going on. And as we know, if you look at Asia in this time period, uh, especially China, Korea, Indochina, and you move also into Africa in this period of time, you're obviously not talking about a Cold War. You're also talking about hot wars. With Mao's revolution proclaiming China as a communist regime in October 1949, China was was a relatively new addition to the communist bloc. But that brought its own problems as well with a, a conflict after the Second World War with Korea. How did that position China in the international fold? The timing of the Korean War came very soon after the establishment of the People's Republic of China. And there's a lot of questions regarding the communist leadership's legitimacy, whether whether we're talking about competitive sports here and you're having sports delegations from China go to other countries, whether it's the Soviet Union or the Socialist Bloc or vice versa, having them come to China during the Korean War. There's a lot of sort of political language tied up with those delegation visits in which, um, you know, Chinese official media, for example, um, are trying to are, are trying to 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 use the sports delegation visits as an opportunity to project itself as the rightful leader of China. This may not be explicit all the times, but it's definitely it's definitely there in the types of language that they're using. This was really the first big opportunity that the Chinese government had to sort of make its point or establish itself as the leader of China. So that's why you had a lot of Chinese involvement, I think. But you also had this massive, massive campaign on the ground in China, Resist America, Aid Korea campaign is what it was called. And that this major campaign was also reflected sometimes in sports meets 
there was always a line or two that participation in this meet or or whatnot was connected to the Resist America Aid Korea campaign. So I guess that sport wasn't exactly the the first priority of the People's Republic in the early years. You have to understand that for decades there had been war in China and that the country was largely in shambles, in ruins, um, both economically, politically, but also quite literally, there was widespread poverty and, and, and ruins. So the sport in 1950s in China, in my opinion, was not connected very much to what was happening internationally. Certainly, in some ways it was, but it was very much connected to a project on the ground to build socialism in China and build a new socialist state. And how did that work? In the 1950s, the first major thing that the party did right up front was when they wrote the when they wrote the constitution, there's an article in there that basically explicitly calls for a sports program development within the broader uh, sense of that. So in other words, sports national sports development as part of education, as part of uh, of people's, um, in this sense, as part of people's daily lives and character formation. So-called mass sport is, is really what they were pushing for. There were massive nationwide programs developed in order to encourage people in their schools, eventually in their work units, as they, as they came to be known, to participate in sport in this way. So is it the case that having established a socialist sports system at home, the Chinese then took that abroad? Many of the programs in 1950s in China were Soviet-inspired. That does not necessarily mean they, they copied the model as, model, as Mao would say, indiscriminately. But they did, in fact, take a lot of elements from the Soviet system. Now, I think that this is really interesting because what you have happening, especially in the media and if you're reading, you know, as I have many documents about the creation on the ground of these sports programs and how they're carried out in China, what you see is that there's a constant need in some cases to remind people that these programs are Soviet programs. At times, they are constantly reminding them that other countries in the socialist bloc and in the socialist world have these programs. So, for example, you might you might have cases in which they're, they might and they take the opportunity of visiting sports delegations to remind the public of this. So, for example, you have the Polish basketball team come and visit in 1952, let's say. And that becomes an opportunity in which they say, okay, we have this Polish basketball team and they've been doing very well. And then the artic- and then a, a newspaper article might, might move right into discussing the types of programs that exist on the ground in Poland. And they'll mention, for example, the Ready for Labor and Defense sports system, which was very popular uh, in many socialist countries and was originally developed under Stalin in the 1930s in the Soviet Union. So they'll take something like this and they'll say, ah, you know, we need to have this for socialist construction, we need, et cetera. But look, the Polish the Polish basketball team is here and they also have this program. So there was there was this very explicit need to connect what was happening in other socialist countries and in the Soviet Union to what was happening in China by referring to the successes of the Soviet Union, oftentimes to successful Soviet athletes or to successful socialist bloc athletes. One of my favorite stories is Emil Zadopek, who was a very famous uh, long-distance runner. He won three golds, I think it was, in the 1952 Helsinki Olympics. And he was referred to, I believe, in the Chinese press pretty much as a model 
for Chinese track and field runners to follow. So you have this sort that this would come alongside perhaps the training methods he used. And then there might be another article sometimes within the same article that would they would, that would then outline uh, Zadopek's other accolades as a member of the Czechoslovakian army. So there's this explicit attempt to to tie in his accolades as a communist socialist model citizen citizen and a model athlete for the average Chinese citizen who might also be starting as a sports athlete. So there was this very explicit attempt in a lot of the literature back then to do this. Let's talk about one sport in particular. Ping pong is the one that's normally associated with the Chinese, but volleyball only became an Olympic sport in 1959. But the Chinese proved to be very good at that, didn't they? It was a very popular sport. I don't know if I want to necessarily say that they were fantastic at it at the beginning, but what I will say is that the Soviet Union, who they had learned quite a bit from and had a lot of exchanges with, was very good at volleyball at that time. And so there and so through the 1950s there were a lot of delegations sent back and forth um with the Soviet Union involving volleyball for example, other sports as well. But there were a lot of exchanges between the two. So most of the methods that they knew came from what they had learned from, from the Soviet Union in this particular case, as far as competitive volleyball uh, was concerned. Hulong, who was the state sports commissioner at the time, had this obsession with something called the three big ball sports. And he wanted China to be good at the three big ball sports. And those were basketball, uh, volleyball, and soccer, or football. And this was sort of an obsession throughout his his lifetime. He died during the Cultural Revolution uh, following persecution. But these were sort of an obsession of his. And for that reason, volleyball was one of the ones in which they invested quite heavily in, in the 1960s. So in late 1964, Zhou Enlai himself invited the Japanese women's volleyball team coach uh, Hirobumi Daimatsu to China for a visit with his women's volleyball team. Daimatsu is a well-known coach, uh, and the women's volleyball team had just won gold at the Tokyo Olympics about a month prior to their visit to China. So Daimatsu was notorious. He trained the Japanese women's volleyball team more or less, according to many sports scholars, like soldiers. He had them work all day in the factory. They were factory workers. Following the end of their shift at the factory, they would then train until sometimes 1 a.m., 2 a.m. at night. His belief was essentially that the women didn't need that much sleep, that it was better to sort of train through the fatigue and train through pain, to treat their bodies as if they were soldiers in a battle. The Chinese were really interested in this because at this particular moment in time, there was an emphasis in elite competitive sport and athletics on athletes training like soldiers, this was not necessarily new to China, and in fact, many of its best athletes came from the People's Liberation Army, and they were soldier athletes who sometimes also just turned into national athletes. Sometimes the team was the same. I've been told by former athletes that sometimes the name would just change to the national team name and they'd travel abroad, but they were the soldier, the, the, the August 1st team. But there were at this particular moment in time, there were actually campaigns in the world of sport to get people to train more like the People's Liberation Army. So they were actually encouraging people to, to do this. 
um, to learn from the way the army trained and to apply those methods in sports. So in that sense, Daimatsu's training and the volleyball style that he brought, that style of training was directly applicable to what was happening in the larger world of Chinese sport at that moment in time. So what the Chinese did in the end, which is very interesting, is they sort of, they didn't agree with Daimatsu in terms of his politics. Uh, Daimatsu was the type of person who believed that there was a lot of individual willpower in volleyball training or in sports training. And the Chinese idea was somewhat different. There was willpower for sure, but there was also this collective emphasis. So what the Chinese did was sort of take what they liked from Daimatsu and apply it to their own programs and sort of chop off what they didn't like. What very few people know, I think today, at least in the English-speaking world, is that many of the successes, the later successes of volleyball in China, particularly in the 1980s when they won gold at the Los Angeles Olympics, and they also won the 81 World Championship, I believe were, were largely due to what happened in the 1960s with Daimatsu's, with Daimatsu's emphasis. And that's because the coaches of that team in 1984, 1981, were people who, uh, who trained with Daimatsu or who were present during some of the visits and both with Daimatsu and with the Japanese women's volleyball team. And those methods and that sort of thinking is what came into their coaching in the 1980s. I've directly spoken with two former athletes who were on China's national team in the 1960s. They remember Daimatsu. And I've also read some former memoirs. And they all basically say the same thing. They say volleyball training was tough before Daimatsu. But after Daimatsu, it became impossible. And they have a term they use in Chinese. They call kulian, which is bitter training. So this is the term they use to describe what they learned in those methods. China remains quite a contender in the world of international volleyball, doesn't it? Because uh, they won gold again in 2004 in Athens. The big thing with Chinese volleyball today is that I think is so interesting is looking at this sort of historical trajectory. So Langping is a hugely famous volleyball coach. And, you know, she coached the U.S. team as well before. So this is an important thing to know as well. But to look at these sort of pedigrees that exist in the world of, of volleyball in China, and I think this is also true of a lot of other sports, perhaps more so in China than in other nations. So volleyball is one sport. You can look at ping pong and badminton are also two other sports in which this pedigree of athletes really extends back to the 1960s for sure. And that's because... Unlike perhaps in many other countries, you still have the socialist sports system in China and the way in which it often rewards people who are top athletes is that after retirement, they become coaches or they become local sports officials and sports leaders. So because you have these sorts of incentives for them to do this, a lot of them become the trainers of the next generation. I think what's also interesting related to that, though, that also relates to uh, other sorts of relationships that people create. And here I literally mean marriage, because a lot of athletes in China marry one another. And there's, there's a lot of speculation as to why that is. My personal belief is that the reason that they often marry each other is partially because of the training that they go through in the schools, they, as you would have in other sorts of settings, and maybe other countries, uh, even among athletes in, in other countries, where you have the same sorts of training regimens, you have the same sorts of things that you go through. In, in life, I think in the 19, when you go back to the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, what I've noticed is that one of the reasons that people likely married each other 
it was partially because their experience, their experiences were so, so, so different from what was happening with ordinary people. I mean, they were able to travel abroad, for example. Other people were not able to travel abroad. They had privileges, maybe not in the sense that they had money, but they had privileges. They also were able to eat better, even during famines. People who were in sports schools ate better. This is still well known that, you know, one of the one of the greatest things, particularly in the 60s and 70s, pe- former athletes have told me that, you know, the ability to go to a sports school was fantastic because then you always had food, you know, and that was and it also brought privilege to your family as well. Later in the 1970s, particularly after the Cultural Revolution, then then you start to hear stories also of people bringing gifts back. So from abroad and gifts back from abroad was a huge was a huge popular thing. The other reason I think that is unique to China, perhaps, in terms of why people married each other or why these sorts of relationships, uh, you know, between people existed is very simply that in China, there's some you had the work unit system and you don't have the work unit system elsewhere, including in, I believe, including in, in the socialist bloc in the Soviet Union. This did not exist in the work unit system was a system in which, uh, you know, a lot of the athletes did everything Everything for their lives was not just the sports school, but it also happened within a work unit. So um, it was like a self-contained neighborhood or community within a city, for example. So that meant that, you know, you bought your groceries there, you ate there, you did everything within this sort of self-contained unit. And when you do everything together, obviously you're going to meet people before the internet, before you had, you know, people calling each other. You're going to meet people who you see every day. And who do you see every day but other athletes? One last thing on that. This was also encouraged. I should say that. This was also encouraged. There were times in which coaches and leaders have gotten involved in sort of becoming matchmakers. You've been listening to a podcast from the series Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a project bringing together experts from around the world and hosted here on the Wilson Centre's online digital archive at digitalarchive.org. These podcasts are part of the project The Global History of Sport in the Cold War, which is sponsored by the National Endowment of the Humanities, directed by Professor Bob Edelman of UC San Diego, Professor Chris Young from the University of Cambridge, and Dr Christian Osterman of the Woodrow Wilson Centre, and run in collaboration with the German Historical Institute Moscow, the Jordan Centre for Advanced Russian Studies at New York University, and Pembroke College, University of Cambridge. The presenter is Vince Hunt and the series is produced by Vince Hunt and Laura Dale.